welcome to episode 27 of the Underground Christian Podcast. This podcast is copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Thank you for supporting us and helping to spread the word of this podcast. Well, humanity is entering a difficult period in history, and we Christians would be well advised to stick together and watch each other's back. Several things are going on simultaneously, none of which seem like good news to the believing world, but appearances can be deceiving. To the average observer, the world is clearly ascendant in the sense that it is re-establishing its ancient pagan value system that is completely alien and hostile to Christian values and traditional Western cultures. Paganism values deities and spiritual experiences that are opposed to God's commandments and authority, and its values induce people to move away from obedience to Christ and toward obedience to the world. And at the same time, there is a rising political ascendancy. Tyrannical rulers have sought to control the geopolitical world throughout the Christian era, but they are much closer to establishing a worldwide governmental system today than at any time in the past. The world leaders openly brag about transferring all power and wealth to a privileged few who will control the means by which people can survive. But controlling humans has always been problematic. Tyrants who make life too miserable on too many people often induce a rebellious response, sometimes to the detriment of those in power. One way that modern tyrants might prevent that from happening is to reduce the size of the population to a manageable size. After all, they only need so many slaves, and there's not a lot of upside to keeping too many of them around. In addition to putting the human population on a diet, another way to establish control over humanity is to modify the human body so that it can be controlled directly, either through its actions or through the thoughts that generate the actions. Or maybe both. The New World Order rulers are actively pursuing the means by which people can be controlled by machines, particularly machines that are powered by artificial intelligence, as we have heard in the last few episodes. They seek to transform human beings into part biological entities and part machines that are, well, controllable. And for the lucky few, they expect the machine part to extend their existence indefinitely into the future via a kind of technological eternity. The creators of these transhuman technologies have allied themselves with the rising tyrant class to transform the organisms of the world into whatever version of the organisms they think are worth having around, whether the organisms like the transformation or not. It's being done with a little famine here, a little economic collapse there, to create chaos that will bring in panic and desperation among the people. In such an environment, the desperate people will happily follow whatever ruler promises to save them from their fate. Yet, for all this engineered chaos, it pales in comparison with what's coming right behind it, a merger of spiritual reality and science that will be unlike anything the world has seen since the days of Noah. In the past few episodes, we've been introduced to a few of the people who are working very hard to transform this world into something none of us would recognize or want, a world in which the rulers can freely express their extreme contempt for other human beings, and most especially for those human beings who obey God and recognize his supreme authority. These rising tyrants think they are a special, elite class of people who do not need to obey the rules of life that the rest of us have to obey. And they may be right, given that they have captured the social institutions, the business communities, and the governmental bureaucracies of the world through corruption, intrigue, and bribery. These rulers, many of whom are highly intelligent, are controlled not by their minds, but by their hearts. Their wretched, misguided, deceitful, evil, vile hearts. These men and women are, in the words of Jesus, 
whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Outwardly they appear righteous to men, but inside are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These are the ambassadors of the world, and the world is the social, economic, political, and military system that has been constructed to advance the agenda of Satan. These people work for the world, and its top representatives reflect all the essential attributes of their leader. They hate humanity in general, and they hate God, and they hate the life that God has created. Most importantly, they have every intention of changing it. So God entered the world to save sinners, those rebellious humans who side with Satan against the one holy and true God. The first time God came into the world, he came to establish a people to himself through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God built a great nation out of nothing, pushing aside Satan's great superpowers of the day to make a little room for his new nation, which was established in a tiny sliver of land in a very congested and contested part of the world. One would think that the Jews would have been overwhelmed with gratitude, but it turns out that most people who were brought into God's kingdom really don't want to be there. They prefer to be with the world, experiencing the multicultural values, experiences, and practices of the diverse people of the world. God is much too restrictive for most people's tastes, insisting that we love him above all else, place selflessness towards others ahead of gain for ourselves, and practice the disciplines of moderation and self-control. Satan, on the other hand, offers us the freedom to love ourselves above all else, fixate on our own self-indulgences, and practice the unconstrained physical and spiritual perversions to our heart's content. When offered this choice, most people happily choose Satan's options, and this was true of the Israelites, who were brought kicking and screaming into God's kingdom, as well as the ones who later on were born in the kingdom. They never fully obeyed God, and they generally loved themselves more than they loved anybody else. They craved the wild indulgences of the surrounding peoples to the point that they quickly became full members of the diverse, non-judgmental, sexually liberated, pagan-practicing world. And that led, inevitably, to the downfall of Israel at the hand of the one who built it, that is God, and the trampling of Israel under the feet of the Gentile nations right up to this current day. But in the midst of all this trampling, God came into the world a second time to do the work of salvation, free of charge, opening the door of salvation to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. This time, he came in the form of a man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah, whom we call the Christ. Jesus came with a free offer of salvation, which some people accept, but most do not. Yet even among those who do accept it, there are many people who just can't accept all that the Bible has to tell us. They know that God has spoken to us in times past and that the Bible recorded the words he spoke because they've been taught that, but they just refuse to believe it. They don't accept that the Bible is the absolute and perfect word of God written for our benefit through the agency of several dozen authors under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and along a remarkably unlikely publication path. They don't believe it because they listen to the mutterings and murmurings of a world that tells them the Bible is not true, it contains errors and mistakes, it was written by men and not God, and all it does is record the thoughts of a bunch of old men from long ago about things that were important to them but mostly aren't important to us. In other words, we can take it or leave it, but if we take it, we certainly need to modify what it says. In short, these Christians don't like what the Bible has to say because it does not fit nicely within the feelings of their heart. These people do not understand its purpose. 
The Bible is not there to entertain us or make us feel good about ourselves and our lives, even though it might have that effect at times. It's there to expose and destroy evil in the world, first and foremost in the people who elect to take on the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a weapon, and all weapons are dangerous to people, particularly to people who do not know they are handling a weapon, as well as those who handle it carelessly. The Bible exists to combat evil, and to the extent that a Christian harbors evil in his or her soul, the Bible is a weapon designed to expose and destroy it. The process of exposing and destroying things is usually painful, and most people don't like pain. Not only do people not like pain, or exposure, or correction, they really love their evil and the benefits it brings to them. Christians have a tendency to think that only the world loves evil, but that's a little white lie that protects us from the concussion of biblical explosions. Christians, like the members of the world, protect their valuables from loss and damage. And if we value our hidden evil, then we will build up intellectual and spiritual bunkers to protect our evil from exposure and destruction. And if those explosions and destruction come from the Bible, we will protect our hidden evil from the truth of the Bible. The heart is deceitful above all things, says the Bible, and the first person it likes to deceive is ourselves. As an example, we Christians think that we know God. We think that we have a pretty good grasp on what the Bible teaches us about God. Even those of us who have a less than perfect grasp on all things biblical will usually profess that we know the two greatest commandments, the first being that we love God. And we love, love, love God. We sing about it at every service. We write popular music about it. We pray about it in private and in public. Love is all that some people can talk about when they talk about God. Now, don't get me wrong. Love is important, but I ask you this question. Which does God find more important? Love that is expressed as a sentiment or love that is expressed as an action? In other words, is the love for God first and foremost a feeling or an action? Is it above all an emotion or a work? While you take a few moments to think it over, I will flip through this Bible that I have conveniently placed here on the desk to the last chapter of John, chapter 21, and begin reading at verse 15. But before I do, let's talk about the background of this passage. The Apostle John and a few of his fellow disciples were bumming around trying to figure out what they could do with their lives after Jesus had been crucified. Since all their dreams of parading around as royal court officials had been crushed, they needed to think about new careers. Peter decided it would be a great idea to go back to that old standby profession of his and catch some little fishies in the Sea of Tiberias, a body of water that was otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. So he and a few other disciples pushed off in his rickety old boat and cast one of his ratty old nets into the sea to see what they could pull up. Around that time, some guy showed up and started a fire at the shoreline. The fishermen had a remarkably unfruitful go at their old job as they fruitlessly cast their net over and over without catching one single little fishy. Eventually, they gave up and headed back to shore. As they were coming in, this guy standing on the shoreline told them to throw the net over on the other side of the boat and try from that side. For some reason that's not explained in the Bible, they decided to try. As divine will would have it, the boat almost sank with all the fish that were caught in the net. Around that time, Peter clued in and realized that it was Jesus who was giving the instruction. Once they had all scrambled back to the shore and unloaded their unexpected haul of fish, Jesus sat down to have a little breakfast with them. Eating some barbecued fish and bread, Jesus set out to give all of us a lesson about what God finds most important about loving God 
at the unfortunate expense of Peter, since he three times had denied knowing Christ when Jesus was being set up for crucifixion. So Jesus asked Peter a very simple question. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon being the original name of Peter before Jesus added the name Peter to him. And by the way, every time Jesus used his real name Simon, what he was about to say was going to be some kind of criticism or correction. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? By these, Jesus might have been referring to the fish, but presumably he was referring to the other disciples, to which Peter replied in English, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. If you are not tricked by my clever insertion and know that Peter did not say that in English, then you're doing well. So why is it that many Christians assume that the word love that Peter used is the same word love that Jesus used? It's because they are reading it in English, and English only has one word that can be used in several different ways. The problem is that we tend to hear the dominant meaning in our mind and apply it to whatever is said. That's deceptive, especially given that the two words used by Jesus and Peter are actually different words. The word for love that Jesus used, as recorded in the biblical text of John, is the Greek word agape. It means the highest and best form of love, which is characterized by a sacrificial act to benefit another person without any expectation of a reward. It is a gift, not an exchange. It's an action, but not an ordinary action. It's a sacrificial action. To express agape love, we have to give something valuable to another person to benefit that person, not us. So, how did Peter respond to this question? He said he loved Jesus using the Greek word phileo, which means the love of a friend. It's a fondness, or a devotion, or a feeling. It is merely a sentiment. It's not an action. And what did Jesus think about that statement? He replied, feed my lambs. That's a command, and it's an action. It's not a sentiment. Peter offered sentimentality. Jesus commanded action. Jesus told Peter to feed his lambs, meaning the lambs of Jesus, not the lambs of Peter. In other words, Jesus told Peter to go to work for another person's benefit, not his own. Shortly thereafter, Jesus again asked Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Simon, again. That struck Simon Peter's nerve. You can almost feel it in the irritation as he replied, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Once more, Jesus used the action term agape, and Peter replied with a passive sentimentality of phileo, to which Jesus replied, Tend my sheep. Another command of action. Finally, Jesus asked Peter a third time, the third time supposedly being the charm, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now Peter, if nothing else, was a very stubborn man. He replied, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Again, phileo. Peter was all about sentimentality and not much about committing to action. To which Jesus commanded, I think maybe somewhat disgustedly, feed my sheep. After this third rebuke, did Jesus conclude this section of scripture with a promise of primroses and tulips if Peter would just emote a little bit harder? No. He said, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. John helpfully added the explanation to this statement. This he spoke, signifying by what death he, Peter, would glorify God. That death would be Peter's crucifixion. And when he had spoken this, he, Jesus, said to him, Follow me. 
Yet another command, another action. Now, I don't perceive a whole lot of sentimentality wrapped up in these verses. Is this how the story is usually explained in your church? The New King James Version heading for this section of Scripture is Jesus Restores Peter. That's not the heading I would write. I would write the heading, Jesus commands his stubborn, reluctant, emotional lieutenant to get his priorities straight. So again, I ask you, what is more important to God? A person who has strong emotional feelings for him or a person who does things for him? Sentimentality or works? I could repeat this exercise out of countless additional scriptures from one end of the Bible to the other, but this example from the lips of our commander I think is enough. God first wants our obedience and action, and if we still have it in us afterwards to add in some sentimentality, then he's all in for that too. That's the order, the sequence of what God wants. Obedience to God, actions to help others, and sentimentality. If you can only manage two, it would be obedience and action. If you can only manage one, it is obedience to God, which, if you really carry it out, will inevitably lead to number two. People who start with sentimentality often, if not usually, never progress much beyond it. They think they do, but they really don't. Like Peter, they exhibit phileo love toward God, but not often agape love. The agape they reserve for themselves, and maybe their family. I know, that's a hard truth to swallow, but we need to face it because that's what the human heart is all about. Agape for me, phileo for you. Phileo, by the way, is to the world what characterizes a good person. When you ask the average person on the street if they are a good person, they invariably say yes because they're thinking about phileo love. And phileo love is what Satan asks you to give God. He encourages you to keep agape for yourself and freely distribute phileo to others. And this is the value of the Bible as a weapon. It tears down our pretenses and pretexts that we are erecting around ourselves to protect our vile, evil hearts. And it does so by laying bare the souls of men. And that is precisely why it is so universally hated. Something that really bothers me is when a Christian elects to pick and choose which parts of the Bible he or she wants to hear. These people tend to stay away from the parts of it that make them feel spiritually exposed, emotionally naked, and personally vulnerable. If they spend too much time in those sections of Scripture, or if they examine Scripture too closely, they sense that they might be required to give up some things that, deep down, they really don't want to give up. And they don't want to give them up because of what is in us. What is in all of us. And Jesus knows exactly what that is. In John 2, 23-25, it says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The word knew is the Greek word genesco or genosco. It means to know absolutely, personally, and intimately. Jesus knows what is in us because he created us and he knows the whole backstory to our creation, something none of us know. There is something wretched and evil that's in all of us, and that something causes us to sin. Sin is defiance of God's rules and instructions and rebellion against his authority. Whatever this thing is, it is a permanent part of us unless it is dealt with by the blood of Christ on the cross, which allows us to get rid of it once we die physically. The Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 2, It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, 
or become, meaning after we die. And the Apostle Paul added in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52, We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We have to be changed in order to enter the kingdom of God, because we cannot enter the kingdom with this thing inside of us that refuses to give up sin. It must be purged, removed, cut out. That is the purpose of the symbology of the Jewish rite of circumcision. It symbolizes the necessary removal of something that is part of us and was created at the point of conception, meaning right from the start of life. Removal of a part of us is something that God has to do because we have no capacity to do it to ourselves. Circumcision was a covenant with God, a sign that he would one day remove that thing that is in his people and that keeps them separated from God. So the Bible is a weapon that is used to expose and destroy evil, and it does so by exposing lies and expressing truth. That is the long way to get to the point about where the world is quickly heading. We Christians are supposed to use the Bible to inform ourselves about a problem that we have inside our bodies that needs some divine correction. We are to see it as something we have to fight, the problem that is, to resist, to struggle with until God finally frees us from the struggle. The world, on the other hand, sees it as an asset, as a valuable component of life that should be cultivated and protected. This asset, this thing that is inside each of us, is like a huge pile of explosives. We can think of this problem in the context of a great expedition. The Christians have stowed their explosives in the belly of a massive ship that is traveling the ocean of life, packed carefully with a great deal of padding and protection so as to not jostle the cargo. The world, on the other hand, has stuffed its great ship full of this explosive, crammed it up to the seams, has it bulging out the windows, and stacked high on the deck. And these two ships are on a collision course. They are going to collide in an event called the Great Tribulation. The paths of these two ships have been predetermined. They are ordained to collide, and the explosion, when it comes, will be massive, dreadful, and horrific. You may be surprised to learn that God has told us something about this explosion in the book that is called the Bible. You might also be surprised to learn that scientists have discovered even more about this explosive material and are doing everything they can to increase the speed of the propellers on their ship to speed up the time of the collision. God knew this would happen, and Jesus gave us specific instructions about what to do when it did. That is what we're going to talk about today. There is a spiritual explosion coming, the likes of which the world has only seen once before, but no one alive today has seen anything like it. It's actually a double explosion, the second being much larger than the first. So why are we talking about this stuff? Why the constant downer topics on this podcast? Aren't we Christians supposed to be happy and positive and joyful? Well, yes, especially in the eternal state. But until it arrives, the world is controlled by Satan and Satan's army is on the move. Having come out of military intelligence, a place where God put me to learn some things about some things, I see myself as a kind of advanced scout whose job it is to locate the enemy, assess his intentions, and advise the people in the rear so they can prepare for whatever the enemy has planned. As I've said before, Christians are not supposed to be spectators at a sporting event. We are the sporting event. We are players in the game, and Coach Jesus would like a team of productive players not a team of lazy benchwarmers. Remember what he said to Simon Peter. If we take to heart what God actually tells us to do and we act on that information, 
then we will likely make good decisions in life and please God. We might even benefit from our actions because God is a good God who is trying to help us and our family get through life's difficulties. But if we ignore what God tells us and don't act on the information, then we will likely find ourselves and our families in difficult situations, some of which we might never have imagined we would have to face. Intelligence gathering gives our side some advance warning of approaching problems so we can develop some options. Now, Satan would love it if Christians would just roll over and do whatever he says, or cower in fear and paralysis because we've not prepared our hearts and minds to face the challenges that God puts in front of us. But if we stick to the script, we will be the soldiers of Christ who do what God commands, and we won't even need to join the army. All we will need to do is go to some basic training, Jesus style. So let's start with the basics of training. The first thing we need to know is that we live in a dualist reality. Atheists believe that we live in a monist reality, which is a one-realm reality. They believe that the physical world is all there is. Space, time, matter, energy. That's it. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we might agree with the atheists, except for the fact that there is a God who made the heavens. For God to make something, he has to be outside of it. God applies his intelligence, personality, power, and ability to the creation process that produced physical reality. He is not part of the creation, he is outside of it. Since time is a component of physical reality, God is outside of time, which is the meaning of his being eternal. So an eternal God outside of space and time means there is more than just physical reality. But the first sentence in the Bible also mentions heavens. There are three of them in scripture. The first heaven is the air over our heads. Birdies like it a lot. The second heaven is space, where the planets and stars are found. The stars include the sun, and there are lots of other things in the second heaven as well. But there is a third heaven, a place where God dwells in some form, but not a place that contains God because he made even that heaven. Third heaven is not found on the earth. It is not found in space, no matter how far out we might go. It is another place, one that human beings are partly in and partly out of. Our spirit is in that place. Our soul splits its existence between that place and physical space, and our body is entirely in physical space. Science is the study of the physical universe, its rules, boundaries, capabilities, and limitations. Scientists study physical things. So despite what you might have heard, scientists are not bad people who do bad things that oppose God. They study half of what God created, and they study it in great detail. Science cannot study the third heaven, the spiritual world, because it has no tools with which to study it. Science uses physical things to measure the effect that a force or object has on other physical things. Since spiritual reality is not physical, scientific measurements have no meaning in spiritual reality, and hence scientists have no physical means by which to assess it. Are you with me? When scientists, or more likely atheists, make claims that science somehow proves God does not exist, they are not making a scientific claim. They are making a philosophical claim. A philosophy is an idea about how or why something works the way it does or exists the way it does. A philosophy may be based on measurements, on science, but it doesn't have to be. It is just somebody's idea about how and why things work the way they do. It can be right or it can be wrong. It can be partly right and partly wrong. Don't confuse philosophical statements with scientific claims. Atheists try all the time to claim science for themselves, but they don't own it. 
God owns it. He invented physical reality. He invented human beings, and he invented science. He owns all of it. So don't be fooled by atheists who claim that Darwinian evolution is scientific fact, and don't be fooled by theologians who claim that scientists are frauds. So how do we know anything about spiritual reality if we can't test it or measure it? Well, there are two ways. The first is through experience. Since our complex, dualist bodies are partly in and partly out of spiritual space, we have a connection to that space that will allow us direct access under some limited circumstances. In other words, you can have a direct spiritual experience, but I don't recommend it. God commanded us not to try and have one. The other way we can know about spiritual reality is through revelation. God's revealed word discusses it at length, and that word is recorded in the Bible. There are many ways we can know that the Bible is the revealed word of God, accurately conveyed, recorded, and preserved through time, but this is not a podcast on that topic. I'm going to assume that you already believe that, or you would have just moved on to another podcast by now. Through the Bible, God has told us some of the details of the spiritual realm, but not very many. It says, for example, that God is there. It says there are lots of living things there, from angels to creatures to gardens to lambs. It says there are good angels and there are bad angels in that place. It says there are demons, which we could argue about whether they are angels or something else, but the point is that there are spirits and they are there. To operate in the physical world, Satan and his demonic angelic assistants need people, and that is what the world system is for. Within the world system, the human system, there are two groups that operate more or less in parallel. I'm going to say that again because that's an important statement. Within the world system, there are two groups that operate more or less in parallel. One group has been tasked with developing attacks against God's creation from the physical side of existence, and the other group has been tasked with developing attacks against God's creation from the spiritual side of existence. Both of these groups use science to implement their attack strategies. So today, we're going to begin to look at the group on the physical side. This group will produce the first spiritual explosion that will dramatically affect the world. The ship is already underway, but fortunately, God told us about it long ago so we could get ourselves ready. He did it in the book of Revelation. We're going to take a relatively quick stroll through chapters 1, 2, and 3, which are popularly known as the letters to the churches. These letters are tied to a part of Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 6 and part of 7 because these portions of Scripture are all parallel passages that describe the same events from different perspectives. Together, they provide a complete picture of what will soon take place. We're only going to make it through chapter 1 in this podcast, but in some important ways, this is the key chapter. It starts out, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. So this is not John's revelation because it's not about John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ because it's all about Jesus, told by Jesus for the purposes of Jesus. But it was God the Father who made the revelation available to Jesus so that he could tell his servants who are his troops down on the earth. Why did the Father make it available? Because these things are going to shortly take place. Shortly, of course, is a relative term. The timing was obscurely revealed to us in 2 Peter verses, uh, excuse me, in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 when Peter said in the context of the great tribulation period, "But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day." All right, here's a quick test. 
How many days was Jonah in the belly of the fish? Answer, three. He was not alive in the belly of the fish, just in case you thought he was hanging out there having a vacation. He was dead. On the third day, the fish belched him up onto a beach where God revived him. He was not resurrected because that involves coming back fixed of that thing that is in us. He was revived, brought back to life, like when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. He would die again, just like Lazarus. When the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign in Matthew 12, 39, he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus confirmed that the Jonah incident was intended to be a sign, a foreshadowing of a greater event that would take place later with Jesus. This three-day symbolism is all over the Bible. In Genesis 40, verses 12 and 13, the text describes a dream of three branches that symbolize the restoration of the cupbearer's position in Pharaoh's court. Branches also symbolize Jesus. The three branches symbolize the three days that it took Jesus to be resurrected from the tomb. In Exodus 10, 12, Moses stretched out his hand, and there was darkness over the land for three days, signifying the three days of mourning following the death of Christ post-crucifixion. But while it was dark, the Israelites all had light in their tents, signifying the promise of God for the restoration after the darkness. In 1 Samuel 9.20, Saul's donkeys were lost for three days, symbolizing the post-crucifixion period of the loss of Jesus, after which the donkeys were restored to Saul, who was the future seated king of Israel, just as Jesus was restored after three days to become the future seated king of the world. The three-day symbolism is all over the Bible. So Peter says, in regard to the end times tribulation period, to God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Now Jews counted a day as being any part of a day, starting at sunrise the first hour and ending at sunrise the next day, or just before sunrise. Jesus was crucified and buried on a Friday, day one. He was left in the tomb on the Sabbath, Saturday, day two. And just after sunrise on Sunday, Mary found the tomb open and empty with Jesus gone, but not yet resurrected, day three. Now, Jesus was 33 years old when he died, and he was born sometime around 4 or 3 BC, because the calendar got kind of mixed up when a Roman monk did the original calculation incorrectly. Most scholars agree that Christ was crucified in about 30 AD. If a thousand years equals a day, then the first day after Christ was crucified includes the years 30 AD to 1029 AD. The second day includes the years 1030 AD to 2029 AD. And the third day begins in or about AD 2030. Does that year sound familiar to you? It should, because it's a very important year to the world. It is the year when UN Agenda 2030 is scheduled to be fully implemented. We haven't talked about UN Agenda 2030 yet, but all the bad things that are happening in the world right now are directly tied to that plan. It is the plan to wipe out carbon fuel, go green, wipe out industrial agriculture, go bugs, move everyone into cities, go Mayflower, implement a digital currency that is tied to a social credit score, go slavery. It is also the year by which a large portion of the population is set to disappear in some unexpected way. So I'm not saying that Jesus is coming back in any particular year, 
but the Bible makes it clear that there are plenty of signs for us to know that the season of his return is fast approaching. That's why God gives us clues. And we haven't even gotten through verse 1 yet. It continues, And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. The angel here is likely Jesus, who in many parts of the Old Testament was referred to as the angel of God, the commander of the hosts. Tradition has it that John received the revelation in a cave on the island of Patmos. The apostle then affirmed his own credentials by mentioning that he actually witnessed Christ in person and that he is accurately conveying the information of the revelation to the people of the world. And isn't it interesting that Satan chose to send his angel to the false prophet Muhammad in a cave too? to provide his own version of revelation. Gosh, Satan likes to imitate God a lot. This section of scripture ends by making the only promise in the Bible of a blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Christ does not care if you read the revelation or hear it as long as you internalize the important words it contains. But the blessing only comes if we keep the things that are written in it. That is an action, and those things we are to keep are instructions to Christians that are found in the letters to the churches. Why we get a blessing will become clear as we work our way through the letters. The rest of the first chapter covers the introduction of the seven churches and the appearance of Jesus. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This section starts by reiterating who is writing the letter, the Apostle John. He is a well-known authority at that time, and signaling who is sending it would have given the letter great credibility. He then indicates to whom the letter is being sent, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, this is a point of great controversy and one of the mysteries of the Revelation. Certainly, there were churches in Asia, and John is going to name some of them shortly. There were far more than seven so many commentators have spent a lot of time trying to figure out why these seven specific churches were selected. Maybe they were selected because John was affiliated with them. Maybe they were churches along a postal route. Maybe they were churches that had particular problems. Maybe, maybe, maybe. There are seven of them, and seven is a very special number in the Bible. It is the number of divine perfection and completeness. It signifies God's hand in the associated object, action, or idea. The reference to the number seven has to do with God's ultimate control over the upcoming situations and is a way of calming Christians by telling them that God has things under control. No matter what things may look like on the ground, God has the greater situation under control. The number seven also signifies that the churches, whatever they turn out to be, are God's instruments. They are for his purposes, not Satan's. The calmness brought about by God's control over the situation is emphasized by the next phrase, Grace and peace from him. From who? From the one who is and who was and who is to come. That is a very well-known biblical formula that is normally used to indicate God the Father through his attributes of eternality and omnipotence. It is a threefold description incorporating all the elements of times past, present, and future, signifying God's control over all things and all ages. And here we run into the number three, which is also an important biblical number. It signifies divine order and is found all through the creation. Not only is God a triune being, being described as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but God created man as a threefold being, being comprised of body, soul, and spirit. God made the three components of time, past, present, and future. 
God ordained the three states of matter, solid, liquid, and gas. God conceived of the three elements that define the universe, matter, energy, and force. But at the end of verse 4, the number 7 appears again, when the peace comes not only from God the Father, but from the seven spirits who are before his throne. If the number 7 follows the usual pattern, this will signify a divine element to the spirits. To find the reference to these spirits, we have to take a walk back to Isaiah chapter 11, when God introduced the future Messiah, Jesus, whom he calls the branch. It reads, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out from his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So the seven spirits are the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. These are the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. So peace coming from the seven spirits that are before God, the Father, is another way of saying that the peace also comes from the Holy Spirit. But verse 5 adds, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from all our sins in, our, in his own blood. So the peace also comes from Jesus Christ with all his credentials that are associated with the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, not to rule in heaven, but to occupy the throne of legal rulership over the earth. The peace comes from all of God. Faithful witness speaks of Christ's revelations while ministering as a man on the earth. Firstborn of the dead speaks of his resurrection and the eventual resurrection of all people who have ever been created. The ruler over the kings of the earth speaks to his royal ascension to the rulership over the earth, something not yet manifested on the earth. That process is what the revelation is all about. Verse 6 goes on to say, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a sneak peek into the future of Christians after they are resurrected. Christ is going to rule politically over the entire earth and Christians are going to be his appointed ruling officials in our resurrected eternal bodies. Not only that, we will also serve as priests to God the Father. And what are priests? They are necessary intermediaries between man and God. Priests were abolished with the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ because he serves in the role of chief priest, and Christians do not need an intermediary between Jesus Christ and ourselves. He is freely available, and through him we also have access to God the Father. But John is telling us that a day is coming when there will be people on the earth who do need priests, and those people will not be Christians because the Christians will be serving as the priests. That day follows the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the culmination of the great tribulation. And that day is described in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. That day will bring Jesus back to the earth, not on clouds of water vapor, but on the clouds of God that he uses to form a visual manifestation of his presence, known to the Jews as the Shekinah glory. These are the clouds that led the Israelites out of Egypt by day. They are the clouds that descended on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments and other laws to Moses. These are the clouds or the fog that filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. And isn't it interesting that every eye is going to see him come?
If we take that literally, or even if we take it to mean that every people group will see him, then we might ask, how? Is he going to go around and around the world like a satellite so everybody can see him? Well, maybe, or possibly, everyone will see him because his arrival will be broadcast on whatever visual platform is used at that time. I rather think it will be the latter. And it says, even they who pierced him. This is often taken to mean the Jews, but did the Jews actually pierce Christ? Well, sort of, in the sense of plotting and scheming to get him condemned to die. And it makes sense that John would place the blame with them because he was Jewish and understood the severe guilt of the Jews in the death of Jesus Christ. This is reinforced when the verse goes on to say, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Here, the term the tribes clearly refers to the 12 tribes of Israel because their mourning is described in other scriptures as well. But just keep in mind that the actual people who pierced Jesus were Gentiles, so everyone shares the guilt. And this section concludes with a statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is another reference to the eternality and omnipotence of God, just to emphasize where all this is coming from. Now, the second half of the chapter fills in exactly how the revelation happened. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John had found himself on the island of Patmos, a Roman penal colony in the Mediterranean Sea, and he was stranded there for the crime of testifying about Jesus. In our current age, we haven't descended quite to that depth yet, being sent to prison for testifying about Jesus, but just give it time. We'll get there. Verses 10 to 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John is in the spirit, which is a euphemism for receiving a vision. A vision is like a dream, except that the visionaire is awake. Today we might liken a vision to virtual reality, but it's a virtual reality that's projected by God. And in case you were wondering, it was taking place on a Sunday, a day that had been adopted by Christians to be the Lord's Day in honor of when Christ rose from the tomb. And from behind, John heard a tremendous voice using the descriptions that is reserved for God the Father with instructions to write down what he sees and send it to the seven listed churches. You might assume that John was given instructions to send these seven letters he was about to jot down to these particular churches because the letters have something pertinent to do with those churches. But that assumption would be wrong. If he sent the letters to these churches at all, it was to preserve them along with the rest of the revelation. God is a writer and he knows how to write. The revelation is about the end times, so it is not going to begin with seven epistles about how we should run our lives. That's called a non sequitur. The revelation is about the end times, so it should begin with something about the end times, even if it does start with letters to seven churches. These are church types, because these church types have something important to do with the rest of the revelation. That is what is called topical writing. We will see the purpose of the churches next week. For today, it's enough to just note where we are going and conclude this first chapter. The voice came from behind John, which is where we pick up the narrative. Now hang on, we're going to cover the rest of this chapter very fast. Verses 12 to 17 and a half. 
Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. These are all Old Testament references that any good Jew of the time would recognize. In Judaism, seven lamps, there is that number seven again, are placed on a single lamp stand, which makes what we call a menorah. The seven lamps represent the seven spirits of God. But in this case, we have seven lamp stands, so the symbology is a little off. Now, God doesn't do anything carelessly or casually, so the variation has significance. We may not know what it is yet, but we know it has to have significance because it's in the text. And in the middle of these lampstands stands a very unusual figure. Jesus used the name Son of Man repeatedly during his ministry, so one like the Son of Man is a person who probably resembles Jesus in some way, yet is different. And how is he different? Well, he's wearing a garment down to his feet, which Jesus could have worn, but he's girded around the chest with a belt of gold. That is the attire of a king, not the attire of a lowly peasant that Jesus was when John knew him. And he was a little bit pale, having a white head and hair, which symbolize age and wisdom. His eyes were bright like fire, which in the Bible usually represents judgment of some sort, so this person is an ancient royal kingly judge. That image is reinforced by his feet, which are like fine brass, refined in a furnace, perfect for trampling enemies and criminals. Whenever we read about a voice that sounds like many waters, that means loud and imposing, like being near a raging river or the ocean in a storm. It is the voice of authority. So this Jesus-like figure resembles the Jesus of old, but is much more imposing. And he's holding seven stars. We don't need to guess what the stars represent because we're going to be told shortly, so we'll just continue. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. A sword is a weapon, and the fact that it is coming out of his mouth says that this person can speak so powerfully that the words are actually a weapon that can destroy things. Maybe figuratively, maybe more than that. And his countenance, the aura around him from his nature, was like the sun in its strength. There's not much physically like the sun for strength, at least in our corner of the galaxy, so he is dominating the world around him, so much so that John collapses in a faint. That's a normal reaction to the physical presence of God. Similar events occurred in Old Testament times. So this frightening Jesus-like figure who presents himself like God suddenly appears and speaks to John who passes out at the sight. We'll conclude with verses 17 and a half to 20, the end of chapter 1. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So this imposing person has a compassionate heart, comforting John in his terror. He tells John that he is the first and the last, which is God, and he is the one who lives and was dead, who is Jesus. Can we get a clearer answer to whether Jesus is God? 
But more importantly, for the purpose of this revelation, the person has the keys to Hades and death. Keys are things that unlock or lock, make accessible or inaccessible, put away or let out. Hades is the abode of the dead, and death is separation of our spirit and soul from our bodies. Jesus has the key to all of that. But equally interesting, Hades and death are portrayed as angels later on in the Revelation, likely fallen angels. Could there be a double meaning here? Jesus continues, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. This little sentence has a lot of creative interpretations. The most popular one is that John is being told to write down what he saw when Jesus walked the earth, what he is seeing in this vision, and the things that he's going to see later on in the Revelation. Three time periods. Look back, look around, look ahead. However, the phrase, the things which are, is the Greek phrase, hos asin, which literally means the things which they are. Henry Alford, a New Testament scholar, translated it this way, the things they signify. Meyer's New Testament commentary says the same thing. This phrase is used 159 times in the Bible, and not once is it translated the same way as it has been translated here in Revelation 1. Alfred's literal translation translates the sentence this way. Write the things which you have seen, the things they signify, and the things which will take place after this. That changes this phrase to present and forward, two time periods, not three. It's all about the revelation, not about history. It makes more literary sense and it fits the context of this part of Revelation better. Finally, Jesus explains that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we see why he used lampstands rather than lamps on a single stand. A single lampstand is symbolic of Judaism or Israel. The seven lampstands are symbolic of the church that Jesus is building in the territory of Satan to confront and tear down the kingdom of Satan. Who are these angels? Well, some people think they are leaders of the churches, the clergy. But if we take the text literally, and God usually writes literally unless he defines the symbology somewhere else in scripture, he is talking about literal angels of the churches. That's a whole new can of worms, but one we will revisit later when we find out what the world is up to. The world intends to apply scientific activities to the world of spirits and spiritual entities. That is a big, big part of what occupies some of the highest level scientific minds and organizations on planet Earth. So at the end of chapter 1 of the Revelation, Jesus is basically saying, don't get yourself worked up too much over the difficulties you are facing in life. I'm here, and I have some instructions for you to pass on to a group of people who are really going to need to know them. And next week, we'll find out exactly what those instructions are, and how they pertain to the current events going on in this exciting and chaotic time in our lives. So praise God that we can still relate the Bible to current events, and the powers of evil have not had this platform squashed quite yet. Pray that this podcast will continue to be protected while we examine all the things that God has to tell us about these seven churches and how they relate to the events that the world is engineering today. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to somebody you know and give it a thumbs up or a happy face or whatever else you can do. Convene a party and play it quietly in the background, kind of a subliminal message throughout, you know, the party. Print the logo and post it by the door as a conversation piece. And when you retire at night, pray for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. 
Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. So you can't say you don't have access to it. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes open, your ears tuned, and your feet moving forward to do the work of God. And let's listen to some mighty good mood music. Yeah.